In this podcast from Techniques in Colorproductology, I'll be talking to Rick Nelson, who is currently adjunct professor in the Department of Epidemiology and Biometry in the School of Public Health at the University of Illinois. He's also an honorary consultant surgeon in Sheffield, UK. In the past, Rick has also been the coordinating editor for the Cochrane Colorectal Cancer Review Group. We're going to talk in this podcast about Rick's latest publication, a systematic review and meta-analysis of the treatment of anal fissure, which you can find if you go to the Techniques in Coloproptology website and click on the online first section. If you're listening to this in a couple of months' time, you'll be able to find it by searching uh, within the journal for the title of the paper or Nelson. So I first asked Rick to give me a bit of background about anal fissure. Um, Rick, thank you very much for joining us. It's a very common thing. Could you tell me exactly how common anal fissure is? Um, incidence data are a bit tough to get together. It's slightly less common, I would say, than hemorrhoids and slightly more common than an anal fistula. It's, those are the three big anal canal conditions we often treat. Uh, so it's one of the big three. Okay, so if you're a coloproptologist, you're obviously going to see uh, a lot of these things. And... Um, there, there are two main main kinds out there. There's, there's a, acute fissures and chronic fissures. Can you just tell me what you what the differences are? Because I think it causes a lot of confusion. Um, there are physical findings associated with chronic fissure, which are clear cut, whether it's heaped up edges or exposed bare internal sphincter or a sentinel pile or polyp. Acute fissure usually has a more irritated red flat base. Um, both typically are located in the posterior midline in most people. Another way to differentiate the two, and this is where things get a bit hazy, is how long the patient's been having symptoms. Um, most people will say it's an acute fissure if the patient's only had symptoms four, six, eight weeks, um, but some people have stretched that out to three months. Um, so there's there's a gray zone in the middle between the two when you look only at duration of symptoms. Mm. And the acute fissures uh, more likely to settle by themselves, and chronic have a relapsing remitting course. Um, that's the general belief. On the other hand, there's no real hard data to suggest that. In that, chronic fissures can sometimes resolve too, and often do, on a periodic basis. Okay, but either way, both of them have, the, have a similar kind of uh, set of symptoms, which is really bad pain and defecation that patients often describe as passing broken glass is a common description, isn't it? And uh, and, a, and a small amount of fresh fresh rectal bleeding and really causes quite a lot of misery in people. Absolutely, heavy bleeding is very unusual with with typical fissures, and that's when you start looking for other causes. You've recently published a, a meta-analysis of the treatment of fissures in uh, techniques in coloproptology. Can you give us a bit of background on, on the meta-analysis and what it encompassed? Sure. Um, the reason for doing it was uh, because there's a great deal of publication on this topic. And the reason there's a great deal of publication is because there's a great deal of confusion. Um, I mentioned in the article that up until 1951, it was absolute chaos on how to treat fissure. There was no general agreement. Then a paper was published about surgery, which showed that it was highly effective. 
Um, everybody operated on people with fissures for the next 30 years until some papers appeared in the mid-1980s suggesting that cutting the internal sphincter resulted in a high risk of permanent anal incontinence. Concomitant with that was a very rapid uh, search for medications or operations that would simulate the sphincterotomy for anal fissure without having this risk of a permanently divided muscle. Um, the purpose of a meta-analysis is to do as thorough a search of the published medical literature and even unpublished medical literature as possible to accumulate all data on what might be effective in treating fissure and what might be the most common side effects related to those treatments. It's a very simple, really, statistical technique for combining things, and if your search is thorough and unbiased, you'll have, hopefully, the least biased presentation about the relative effects of each treatment. It's sort of two main parts to match analysis. There's non-surgical treatments uh, for Fisher, and there's 117 studies that uh, make the analysis in there, and 31 studies for surgical treatment for Fisher. So what I, what I thought I'd, we'd do would be to um, sort of take a stepwise uh, look at treatments for Fisher, and I thought it might be a good place to start with acute fissure. You've already mentioned the, the slight grey area around acute fissures, but is there any evidence for the treatment of acute fissure? Well, the patient's need for, for symptom relief is where that evidence is going to be accumulated. There's almost no evidence for surgical treatment of acute anal fissure. It was a general, the accepted uh, 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 approach that you should never operate on these, but simply do what you can to relieve symptoms from uh, purely symptomatic relief with sit spads and bulking up the stool and topical anesthetics to more recent approaches of hopefully things that would hasten the cure of the fissure, which include medications like GTN and botulinum toxin and calcium channel blockers applied locally. Um, I should mention the meta-analysis that was published was limited exclusively to randomized controlled trials of these various approaches. And in, in limiting to that, you hopefully will eliminate the risk of selection bias in, in looking at your patients and how they respond to treatments. Um, it's clear, I think, that selection bias was a very big factor in the papers published in the mid-1980s that described very high incidence of incontinence, for instance. Mm -hmm. So acute fissure, conservative treatment, diet, um, there's not a lot of evidence in randomized trials to, to guide us, but that's what we've done for a long time. Right. There's, there's a few randomized trials that have looked at GTN, and um, uh, oof, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I can't remember any with Botox or calcium channel blockers, mm -hmm. but showing that it, it provided good symptomatic relief as GTN is kind of a topical anesthetic too. Um, and the fissure would often then resolve either because it just does yeah. or because the GTN hastened that resolution. Okay. So uh, that's key. So moving on to uh, chronic fissures, which is the, 
the one that chiropractologists probably see more of. And we've talked about how to differentiate, perhaps on time it's not clear, and also the various morphological features associated with chronic fissure. And I suppose and the, the treatment for chronic fissure really divides into, into these two groups, isn't it? Non-surgical treatments and surgical treatments. So maybe we should cover the non-surgical treatments first. So what did um, what's the, the meta-analysis tell us about non-surgical treatment for how effective is it, I suppose, firstly? Uh, you know, this is where things get extremely difficult um, for two reasons. One is because you, it's almost impossible to count the number of things that have been tried for chronic fissure medically. The three big ones I've already mentioned, GTN and botulinum toxin and calcium channel blockers. But there's about another 35 or so that have been subjected to randomized trials. And if you look at uh, certain sources um, to determine if there's unpublished uh, trials, the most fruitful being the World Health Organization's internet portal for publications, there were 30 or 40 more unpublished randomized trials of medications I'd never heard of. There's no way to get the data um, to, to determine how effective they were in that case. It's just there's a lot out there that people are not publishing. If, uh, so that's problem number one, is there's lots, and most of those medical treatments have been subjected to only one or two trials, and often with very few patients. That means that the data are very slim and are subject to what's called imprecision when you look at the overall quality of the evidence. Um, you really can't make any recommendations to a practicing surgeon based on that little inflammation, information yeah. um, because the random error is too great. Yeah. You, it's just you don't really know. You can get intriguing ideas for pursuing further treatments, uh, but the imprecision is huge for the vast majority. Okay. Looking at the big three, there's another problem that arose, and particularly with GTN. There have been 19 randomized trials of GTN, that should be enough to absolutely nail down whether it's effective or not. And statistically, it was effective. But if you look at the next issue of assessing how useful the evidence is, it was regarded as very poor because of a great deal of, of statistical heterogeneity in the meta-analysis. It was huge. Hmm. And it was huge, I think, because um, most studies only measured healing at six weeks. And that's clearly not long enough follow-up to determine whether the patient's healed or not, simply because of the waxing, waning nature of anal fissure. So again, uh, we need more studies that are going to look at, especially GTN, but the other two as well, with adequate follow-up to determine how effective they are. There is certainly a strong hint that GTN is effective because it passed the statistical barrier, but it didn't pass the quality of evidence barrier. So we think we think GTN might be okay according to the evidence, and you know it, it provides symptomatic relief if not healing. You know it, it certainly provides symptomatic relief, um, and patients certainly have healed with GTN. The trouble with GTN is of those that have been found to heal, 
at this early period, six weeks, uh, 50% will recur in the following year. Yeah. Again, giving evidence that there's this up and down effect of anal fissure. So uh, there's some evidence for GTN working. Um, what about calcium channel blockers? They work, if anything, slightly better than GTN. They are a little bit plagued by the shorter follow-up. But as a group, the randomized studies in, this, in the comparison of calcium channel blockers to GTN had a little longer follow-up. And so the quality of that evidence was uh, stronger than GTN alone versus placebo or, or no treatment. And then, and then um, we're on to things like Botox. That's uh, probably the next step up in most people's ladder. Right. And that is uh, um, no better, no worse than GTN, uh, but with, again, very poor quality of evidence. So roughly equivalent. Any idea of the dose? That's a, a thing that often causes some no, no. Yeah, there's, there's uh, several dosing studies um, that really weren't, they showed equivalence, basically, no matter what you injected. Okay, so, so GTN and Botox and calcium channel blockers, all about the same, apart from calcium channel blockers, perhaps slightly better. Let's talk about side effects now then. So that, that's, the, that's the downside of, of these treatments, particularly the nitrates. So uh, it tells a bit, it looks like calcium channel blockers are going to come out ahead here, I think. That's correct. Um, just looking at the data from all the randomized trials we had, 28% of patients taking GTN had significant headache during the course of treatment. Um, whereas uh, for topical calcium channel blockers, it was only 16%. So a little more than half. Yeah, well, no, calcium channel blockers for you, please. Given the choice, uh, we'd, we'd all have uh, calcium channel blockers. You know, I, I guess on the one hand, on the other hand, I mean, there's much more evidence for nitrates, admittedly, um, and they're rather more available still in many places. But yeah, they're, they're roughly equivalent, but calcium channel blockers would probably be my first choice for medical treatment too. Okay, so, and, and then Botox, I mean, the problem with that is it has to, you have to, come into hospital to have it injected. It's not a primary care solution. And again, not 100% without side effects, Botox. Well, there is rumor of incontinence with that. But in fact, if you look at, at nitrates and calcium channel blockers, all of them have a calculable risk of incontinence. It's not zero. Um, I think the, the, the practice in Britain is very different from the practice in the United States in that Botox is administered in the outpatient department, not in theater. Um, so it's, it's less, ex you know, it's ridiculously expensive on the one hand, and maybe the downside in the United States is Botox is still viewed by insurance companies as a cosmetic agent, and therefore would not be covered by insurance. But it's, it's not something your family physician, your primary care physician could, could do. You'd have to see, you know, someone with experience. You know Right. right, I've not encountered that coming from a GP at all. Okay, so, um, well, that, I think that's um, topical treatments and Botox, so we're, we're probably on to surgery now. Okay. Surgical treatments range from uh, probably anal stretch through sphincterotomies of various kinds to advancement flaps, so maybe we could take those in order. 
Okay, well, anal stretch, we uh, euphemistically called, when I first heard of Peter Lord, is the old Lord procedure. Because it was uh, an eight fingers in and then stretched to the um, ischial tuberosities. And in fact, that was commonly done in the 19th century for Fisher. Uh, with, with quite high incidence of incontinence, some of those authors mentioned too. Um, as far as the randomized studies done uh, since the 19th century, uh, sphincterotomy performed quite a bit better than manual anal stretch, um, and with a much lower risk of incontinence as well. There were not a huge number of studies. I think we only had seven studies to start with, and the best data came when two of those studies had to be eliminated in a in a, a, a secondary analysis because of quality issues related to the conduct of the studies. On the other hand, um, in recent years, more controlled anal stretches have been investigated, again, in very small studies and only one or two single studies. And the, in, in the, the results of those are quite encouraging, either using a pneumatic balloon or just a speculum. So not, not ripping the sphincter to shreds with your hands, but a controlled anal stretch, or even with patients using an anal dilator at home, have shown some very encouraging results with healing and virtually no anal incontinence. So surprisingly, anal stretch not quite as bad as we used to think. Absolutely. But again, the quality of the evidence which is a critical part of meta-analysis. I mean, meta-analysis isn't just doing the, the statistical thing to look at odds ratios and, and confidence intervals. Things that have been added, especially by the Cochrane collaboration in the past uh, 20 years of its life, um, have been quality assessment of each individual trial and then quality assessment of the body of evidence. And this is really critical as in the process of meta-analysis now. And I think the quality of evidence for these newer studies is, is very poor because there's just too few of them. The results are so encouraging that more studies should certainly be done in this area, but I'm not sure that, that I would be responsible in recommending this to the average practitioner. The mainstay of treatment is lateral internal sphincterotomy. How does that fare in a, in a meta-analysis? Well, better and worse, you might say, at the same time. On the one hand, Sphincterotomy has a very high cure rate. Patients report almost an, an immediate release of their pain. And it looks like the cure is permanent. Recurrence at one year after partial lateral internal sphincterotomy is, is almost unheard of. Roughly 95% of patients will be permanently cured by sphincterotomy. The downside related to risk of side effects is that some patients have trouble controlling some aspect of their bowel habit after the surgery. That control is usually related, is usually regarded or described in the published papers as minor, and what they mean by minor is incontinence deflatish or anal seepage, moistening mm. their anus, but not necessarily incontinence to solid stool. So how, how, common, is, sorry, how common is that then? Well, that, this is where things get very confusing yeah. because we have papers from 
some very reputable institutions in the late 80s through 2005 that show incontinence rates as high as 35 or 40 percent and to solid stool even 15 to 20 percent. And yet in the randomized trials, we found that incontinence rates with sphincterotomy were only about four and a half percent. I think ascertainment in randomized trials, one would hope was more accurate than in non-randomized trials, because all these trials have had to pass ethics committees that look very carefully at side effects and how they're ascertained before they'll let an investigator go ahead and do the trial. So I would, in general, trust stuff from randomized trials more. Lots of people will be more sensitive and uh, about uh, males and females and who to offer uh, sphincterotomy to. And uh, I think, you know, you obviously, most people would take a history, uh, an obstetric history and previous anal surgery history and, and whether or not they're, they have continence problems at the moment. So how do males and females shape up in the meta-analysis? Any, any differences from the evidence? No detectable differences from the randomized trials at all. Um, it certainly has been common surgical practice to be more careful and more conservative with women. Uh, but but there's no evidence to support that, really. I could digress again, but it would be a long okay, well, Is that about selection criteria and inclusion criteria? Yeah, I would say that in my own practice, I, I made no difference between males and females. Um, there are some people that can't have they have a low pressure fissure, a, a sphincterotomy might do them might not do them much good. And you left with an advancement flap, uh, or people that have a low sphincter injury. Any, anything there? That's one area where I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, is I think that the way I was taught to do a sphincterotomy is you never do a sphincterotomy in somebody that you can admit two fingers to their anus under anesthesia. Yeah. You know that absence of sphincter spasm is an absolute contraindication to sphincterotomy. And I think maybe much of the incontinence that results from sphincterotomy might happen in individuals who failed GTN, for instance, and got a sphincterotomy, even though they didn't have any spasm. Yeah, yeah. So I think the advancement flap is, I think any symptomatic relief in the absence of sphincter spasm is worth trying. And that would mean advancement flat but even you know pursuing somewhat more aggressively medical treatment too yeah and somebody with no sphincter spasm so advancement flat's not a very commonly performed procedure in general is there any evidence any any proper evidence about the use of advancement flat and fissure well there's a grand total of two randomized trials so again the trouble is the quality of evidence is going to be very poor hmm. and what that showed is that for cure fissure it was somewhat worse. But again, it's just there's not enough evidence to make a recommendation to a practicing surgeon either way. Well, thanks for it. That, that's uh, a really clear uh, summary of the evidence, and everyone can read about it, you know, meta-analysis, uh, publishing techniques in coloproxology. Um, but just, just sort of help us tie all together in a, in a treatment algorithm. What's, what's the Nelson approach to anal fissure? How would, how would you treat one of your patients who presented with one? Um, before saying that, I'll say this paper was not meant to be a, a guideline for surgeons. It was meant to be encyclopedic to let them know where the field is and to help those that make guidelines try to sift the wheat from the chaff. Um, 
What I did treating patients with Fisher is I would be as honest as I could about the side effects of each treatment. The minute you mention the word incontinence to many patients, they've made their mind up, you know. Um, but if you look at absolute risk reduction, even though sphincterotomy is about four times more likely to cause incontinence than Botox or GTN or calcium channel blockers, the absolute risk reduction is uh, if you take the medical treatments, it's about three per thousand will get incontinence. And if you do surgery, it's about 14 per thousand people will get incontinence. In other words, the risk is still pretty small in an absolute sense. Still, what I told every patient, because it might be a week or two or three before I can get them to theater, is let's start you on GTN. That's what I usually did. And you can take it and you can call me in a week and say, I feel fine, and we can delay your surgery. If at the end of that week, the headache is bothering you or your bottom is bothering you, then you keep your surgical date. If you have rejected surgery out of hand, then by all means, we can go through sequentially all the medical treatments if you like, keeping in mind that surgery is always available to you and that the risks of surgery are certainly quite small and very relieving. So that's the sort of discussion we'd have. So, but from the evidence, you know, that, that we've talked about topical treatments, you'd uh, say calcium channel blockers probably got the edge at the moment, pending more more studies, and uh, and then internal sphincterotomy, not as bad as advertised for for many years, and the the, the absolute risk of continence is about fourteen in a thousand. And that's yeah, minor, and so, minor incontinence as well. So, you know, to, to flatus and a little bit of mucus leakage or something. Right. And for the investigators in your audience, let's look more at controlled dilation and clove oil and things like that. Right. Okay. Well, Rick Nelson, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk about us and, uh, and uh, clarify the evidence on anal fissure. It's been an honor. Thank you very much. Okay.